nerds! Welcome to Research Hole, a podcast where I talk to artists about the research holes we fall down on the way to our projects. I'm Val Howlett, and this is the fourth episode. I should mention we're in season one of this podcast, and season one is going to be all of May um, and all of June, and then I think probably season two will be in the fall. More to come on that, Um, but you'll hear us through June. And our guest today is Mary Wynn Hyder. Mary Wynn Hyder is the author of the middle grade books, The Losers at the Center of the Galaxy and The Mortification of Fovia Munson. And she's currently working on a commissioned theatrical adaptation of Fovia for the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. Mary Wynn has an MFA from Vermont College of Fine Arts, and she lives in Chicago. Welcome, Mary Wynn. Thank you, Val. Thank the, you. The Losers at the Center of the Galaxy just came out or is it coming did. out, right? It just came out, yeah. It's How's about... it been going? How's it oh. been having your second book in the world? <laughs> oh, it's such a relief. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Um, it's so funny. I when, I when I started working on it, I was like, I know that second books are really hard. And because I know that, it's not going to be hard, which is <laughs> the, the most I've maybe ever failed oh. <laughs> at trying to psych myself. I was, it was pretty funny that I really did think that, and I, and I was absolutely wrong. And so um, this, it, was, it was a real, the, you know, the pieces of this book just took um, a lot longer to, to, for me to figure out how they fit together. And, um, and so it was a real, uh, it was a real journey. (laughs) (laughs) They're both Um, middle grade, right? So mm -hmm. they're both for like, would you say like upper middle grade or like, like upper elementary school? What are you thinking age wise? I generally, um, fall into the like third through seventh or eighth grades. That makes sense. Um, but I will also say that, like, often the subject matter of my books is um, so. For example, Fovia, um, and we'll talk about this more. Like, takes place in a cadaver lab. So there's lots of like, um, there's like a lot of cadaver lab talk. So it's maybe not for um, your your slightly more faint of heart third graders, <laughs> which I totally was. <laughs> you were. <laughs> oh, definitely. I mean, I also I think I also loved it. Like, I remember. Um, we had in my school library the comic books of the classics. And oh. I was so obsessed with the turn of the screw. Really? Um, yes. And I didn't like, as like as I got a, at, at various points, I had a real hard time with scary things. And as an adult, I'm super not into scary things. But um, but there were periods where I really, I was really attracted to the, um, to the, like, gruesome, um, to, to the, like, really gruesome stories. The, so I have so many thoughts on this. One okay. is that <laughs> <laughs> I also went through phases. Like, I remember when Benicula, did you read Benicula? Oh, I love Benicula so Okay, much. I yeah. never read Benicula. So whenever everyone was reading it, which I think was, like, around third grade for me, mm-hmm. um, I was like, that seems gross or scary or like creepy in a way I can't handle Mm -hmm. but by fifth grade I was reading all the Goosebumps books (laughs) so something happened between third grade and fifth to me 
Well, I feel like that's a really important time for trying out what it feels like to be scared. Yeah, that's a good point. Like as soon as we're ready, that it's a really important, it's a really important time. Um, But I want to emphasize too that because I have read, I haven't read The Losers at the Center of the Galaxy, but I've read The Mortification of Fovia Munson. And it's not scary. It's not scary. (laughs) It's really goofy. I'm really setting it up to be scary. But yeah, it's not scary at all. It's a little gross. Um, But like fun gross. Like there are three talking singing heads or four. I can't remember. Three. Yeah. Three. Right. I'm thinking four because of the the barbershop quartet. Sure. But yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I found phobia like delightful um and it's been a while since I read it I read it when it first came out but I'm I'm psyched to talk about it more but like I want to ask about the losers at the center of the galaxy because I haven't read that one Mm -hmm. or I haven't read a a description of it at all so it's about it's it's about a brother and a sister and their um their dad goes missing and they wind up coping with it in very different ways and the the eighth grader brother um, throws himself into playing the tuba and the and sort of um, basically acting like everything is fine. And the his seventh grade sister um, starts a chemistry club and tries to find a cure for CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is what their father had and why he left. So he was a football player. Um, he had... Uh, he started showing symptoms of CTE, which of course is, um, in, it's catastrophic. Um, yeah. And, and to basically he made the decision that he, rather than have his kids watch his slow decline where he was going to forget them, he was going to, you know, maybe get, he he already had at this point has experienced a lot of depression, but he maybe is going to get angry and, um, doesn't just doesn't want that. And so he just so he just walks out of the house and leaves, which um, is uh, considerably more serious of a setup than than sort of how I put together stories. Um, Mm. And so um, so there are I'm going to when I talk about the research hole I went into for phobia there, it actually like sort of continues into into losers um, because I had that big, I had that big science piece um, of, of not just wanting to accurately represent CTE, but also trying to humanize it enough that I could still write the book that I wanted to write. And because I think that, uh, so it's ultimately a grief book, but I think that a really, I'm going on such a tangent. No, no, tangents are good. Tangents (laughs) are like what this whole thing is about. (laughs) Um, But I think for me, understanding grief, um, there's, I, I understand grief, I think, through the fractures in it that allow light in and that are, um, like, I remember going to my grandmother, driving to my grandmother's burial um and me it was like me and my brothers and her best friend who was another sort of grandmother figure for us and of course all of us were really sad 
but we spent the entire drive um, teaching her about Ren and Stimpy and acting out pieces of it for her. And just like the four of us like laughing our asses off on the way to her barrier, you know, to and 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 I think that that's like such an important part of of um of reckoning with grief. And so um so the book is actually like it is it it is um it is different from phobia, but it is I think sort of of a still of a piece when you said the book you wanted to write like like you still wanted to you wanted to accurately depict this disease but also write the book you wanted to write Mm -hmm. did you mean like was it a tone thing like Mm -hmm. what was the book you wanted to write that was the hardest about writing the losers was was figuring out how to balance that very serious disease and my my sort of I don't want to say brand but because there's something different it's different it's not quite brand like my voice of storytelling um right which is like there's an inherent goofiness to I mean at least to phobia yeah yeah because I think Oh, and so this is one of the reasons that I write for this, that I love writing for this age, is because I think that everything at, at or at least for me, when I was around that age, everything was at the same time deadly serious and also totally absurd and, and, and didn't, didn't seem to make sense. And I think that 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 the the way that the, that it's almost like our perception of the world is locked in this battle between um between reality and absurdity and i i find that such a potent place to tell a story about how we figure out who we are yeah do you feel like your perception of the world today like you at your age now <laughs> Is that same balance between like seriousness and absurdity, or was it specific to that age for you? I think that it was very specific to that age for me. <laughs> this is this is such a weird thing to say, but I think I like my humanity better when I allow myself to see all of that in the world. Yeah. Um, I think I am kinder and gentler and what I what I experienced when I was a kid was that also I was very scared yeah of things I think that's the gift of being older is that I can bring to it um the understanding of what things are actually scary you know yeah yeah you have that sense of like what's underneath yeah what's underneath and it's here and it's 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 Stuff that I didn't um, maybe know how to exactly process when I was a kid. You know, it's like systemic racism is scary. Not whether um, whether somebody's going to like me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Legit. When you started working at the Cadaver Lab, 
were you afraid of the bodies as a grown-up? So I thought I was going, I thought it was going to be hard. So I'll tell you a little bit about how that happened. It's, it's also maybe a little bit cheating, I think, for this podcast, because what happened was it was almost like I had a, um, I had like an existing condition of a, of a, of a hole that I then turned into a research hole. So <laughs> I was at grad school with you and yeah. I, I had been, um, I had been gigging hard, um, and I decided that because I was in grad school, I needed a nine to five, that I couldn't balance the having lots and lots of jobs with also trying to be a, a graduate student. And so I, um, I had been doing some work for a medical school and I was, um, so <laughs> there's a popularized by Seinfeld, um, there is a very legitimate job called a standardized patient, which is a, um, an actor who comes in and pretends to be sick so that they can train a medical student how to have a better clinical uh, manner, how to, how to have a better bedside manner, and how to actually, you know, touch a patient, how to actually talk to a patient about a difficult topic or about a, a non-difficult topic, <laughs> just how to talk to people <laughs> at all. Um, and I had a background in acting. And so at this point, I was working for this medical school as a person who was training actors to do this job. And I was doing it for a big simulation center that was part of the um, part of the school. And the simulation center included um, a a. Uh, like a wing that was um, had like mannequins and had um, a simulated like simulated clinic rooms and simulated ORs and like like um, we we were doing a variety of trainings that were fascinating fascinating stuff. Um, so I I was working on that and. There was so there was that wing. There was also the cadaver lab, and at the time, um, they had just lost the receptionist for the cadaver lab, and they the director of the center came to me and said, "Could you ask one of your? We just need somebody there. Can you ask one of your actor friends if they would um, be interested in becoming our receptionist?" And at the time, I was, I had you know just started grad school and I was like, what are the responsibilities of that job? Yeah. And he was like, oh, it's nothing. Like you just sit there. There's a button under the desk. You like either let people in or don't let people in depending on who they are. <laughs> you know, if they like, if they are, you know, like you don't want, <laughs> like not that many people are going to wander into a cadaver lab, but you don't want people who are going to wander into a cadaver lab. You like, you want people who know where they're going and know that that's where they're supposed to be. So, um, <laughs> that so is I was the like, dream job right. for I know. And so I was, I was like, so I could sit there and write my novel. And he was like, oh, sure. Oh I was my God. very above board about this. So <laughs> I was like, oh, I will like that job. So, <laughs> So I, I took that job and I started working as just the receptionist. Um, it's the exact same job I give my main character, except that she's 12. 
Right. Um, and it's her parents' lab. Um, but so, so I was working there and, um, and there are different kinds of cadaver labs. There are labs there. The one that I think most people know about is like an anatomy lab where you, um, you're a medical student and you with maybe a couple of other medical students get assigned your cadaver for a whole year. And you use that year to, and that cadaver to learn about the systems of the body and like, um, understand how the respiratory system works and look at tendons and, um, and it's a, it's a, it's a very like intense process. And at the, at the end of the year, there's something really lovely that often they'll, medical schools will do where they will have a, um, an interfaith, um, celebration of those people and who, who donated their bodies to, to the cadaver lab. And so they'll like the medical students and the families will like come together and they will, you know, just do like a service. It's not like you're going to talk, you're going to be like, wow, your grandmother's spleen was huge, (laughs) you know, like, but it's, it's a lovely, like, um, it's a really lovely, like sort of way to celebrate all of the, all of the, um, sort of, um, it's such a weird way to say it, but like all of the life that comes from someone donating their body to an anatomy lab. <clears throat> so anyway, so that's, I think, the one that most people know about. The one that I worked at was very different. It was a surgical cadaver lab. And so what that meant was that um, we would host groups of medical students, residents, um, attendings, whoever needed to be working on anything, Um and they would come and they would do a surgery. They would practice a surgery, basically. And because it's a surgical cadaver lab, unlike an anatomy lab where you like you want your whole body and you want it to last. And so you're going to embalm. It's going to be embalmed because you're going to want to take your time over the year. You know, mm-hmm. in my lab, um, you don't want to embalm. You don't want to have something embalmed because it's going to change the quality of the tissue and it's not going to respond the way that it does in a live person in surgery. And so instead what we would have is we would have um, our specimens flash frozen. And so they would be immediately flash frozen. Um, We would get them delivered and we would keep them in a walk-in freezer until it was time to use them. And then we'd take them out and defrost them. The, uh, The other piece to that (laughs) is that also you don't need a whole body if you're going to do brain surgery all you need is a head otherwise you're it's a waste right so we would only actually get the the parts that we needed and so that was one of my responsibilities was ordering the very specific body parts um and um and this is where i'll tell you a story (laughs) Oh, please. Please tell me a story. Because I'm I'm imagining, like, the first time you did that, just the weirdness of being like, okay, I have to order, like, three arms and a head, and just, like, I'm yeah. doing this. Like, this yeah. is what's happening right now. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but then, but then you fall into that, that trap that happens, like, uh, after you've been working there for a little while and you get sort of casual about it and you <laughs> oh no and you don't pay as much attention as you should <laughs> and um and so I was supposed to order one leg 
and it was supposed to cost six hundred dollars. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> I I have no idea what's going to happen next, but I'm excited and a little scared. Well, I was not paying so much attention, and I I ordered six hundred legs. No, six hundred. <laughs> I did. Oh my god. Wait, what happened? Well, it must have been an astronomical sum. So, so I actually I tell this story when I do school visits, and the kids are immediately on it. They're like, "That's three hundred and thirty six hundred thousand dollars." I'm. It's spectacular how fast they compute it. I'm like, you are all geniuses. Um, they must love that story. Oh, they do. <laughs> they really do. <laughs> and so what happened was that my boss looked at the order and was like, oh, this looks great. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and then my boss's boss looked at the order. Because when you're ordering body parts, there are a lot of checks and balances. So <laughs> good. my good. boss's boss looked at it and was like, Whoa! <laughs> Hold the phone. <laughs> so, in fact, I didn't. We did not get six hundred legs because that would have been. It would have been untenable. I don't. <laughs> we had uh, yeah. one walk-in freezer. Like, <laughs> would have been a nightmare. So, your actual question was, how did you feel when you started working there? Yeah. And the answer is that I, I thought I was like, well, it's a good thing. I will only be at the desk because I think that that's going to be I don't I don't want to work in the lab. Like I I think that would be too much for me as a um as a person who was at various points extremely squeamish. Um I I just thought it was going to be <clears throat> I thought I was going to have a metaphysical crisis. <laughs> and I, the first time that I like really like went in the lab because I, you know, had to ask my boss a question and he was working in there. Um, I, I realized like it was not going to be a, an issue because, and I think there are a couple there are a few reasons. Like one is that my grandparents donated their bodies to science. So that from the time that I started working there, I was like that that felt like a very real thing to be like, oh, this is like what happened um, with their bodies. And and when I went in there, it it actually wasn't. It wasn't gross in the way that I thought it might be gross or disturbing. It felt really, it felt really sacred, actually. Wow. Um, to be like, this is something very important. Like, people are learning how to save lives in here in a very real way. And it, it totally, it, it took away, like, the sort of, um, the sort of lightweight, um, the like goosebumps factor of it for me. I was, I, it, it really, it really changed my, not necessarily my attitude because I, I was of course always thinking about my grandparents to begin with. It wasn't like I didn't have any sort of jumping off place, but it, 
and it actually was very nice that that it happened that way so that I wasn't then just ooked out thinking about my grandparents <laughs> you know um <laughs> It wound up feeling like a, a really incredible, important thing was happening there. And um, and so that and that actually so then I'm going to extend that and then say that, like, that was really when I realized that I I needed to write about it, because. On one hand, you had this like deadly serious workplace where you are going to think about your mortality like all the time. And then on the other hand, you have this like situation where you you like you accidentally ordered 600 legs and it's completely (laughs) ridiculous and absurd and to me that is like the essence of middle school is like the deadly serious and the absolutely ridiculous um totally juxtaposed in a single moment you know and um and so so that's why i was sort of like, it, it, I didn't actually set out to write the story and then say, oh, well, if I'm going to do this well, I need to go work in a cadaver lab. I got the job to support my grad school habit. <laughs> and <laughs> and while I was working there was like, I need to write a story because it's uh, that takes place here because it is exactly right. Um, so so it was a little bit of a reverse <laughs> Yeah, reverse but research that's hole. how it happens but, a lot mm-hmm. of the time, I think, is that, I mean, you, you don't necessarily always start with the research hole, right? You start with the spark. Yeah. Like the, the moment you described where you're like, oh, this is a, this is important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think and, that, oh, go ahead, sorry. Well, just, and then maybe you... I don't know. Then maybe you find other stuff to support it, and that's when you start digging, mm-hmm. digging yeah. around in research or or other kinds of digging too. Mm-hmm. Was there anything about cadaver labs that like you found interesting, or read about, or just like experienced working there that? could not make it into phobia because it didn't make sense for the plot, but, like, you just think is cool or weird or interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually... So the 600 legs thing I put into the book. I had her do it. I made her do it. Um, you had to. Yeah, I it's had to. It's just too good. <laughs> yeah. Um, but a thing that I learned that did not make it in the book, um, but that I debated putting in the book, was that um, there's a real black market for um, for bone. Really? Because of bone grafts. And... Wait, like, tell me exactly what a bone graft is. In this part, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fake because I don't actually remember, or I don't, maybe I don't know the, I don't remember if I've ever known this, the actual science of how bone bone grafts really work but I feel like bones are they they can like <laughs> it's okay you can say that you don't know I don't know I definitely yeah. don't know but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna I'm gonna say what I think happens <laughs> okay fair enough and, <laughs> and it's gonna be wrong it it's us. gonna be super wrong if you're a doctor listening you could write it <laughs> oh totally <laughs> totally um and this is this is maybe like the part of my brain that's still in middle school that's like 
I, I'm missing the information here, so I'm going to fill it in, which is that bones, like, grow back together. Because we, I mean, we do know that bones heal. You know, sure. when we break a bone, it grows back together. And so, like, so, but people use, you know, I mean, they do bone grafts when they need to, like, ex, like make people's bones longer. I I feel like I've definitely seen that on a couple TV shows. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Um, I stray away from the medical shows, but Carmen oh, fair. loves them. Yeah, fair. I um, I think I think that <laughs> depends on my mood. Sometimes it's the most fun to be like, oh look, other people pretending to be <laughs> doctors. <laughs> uh, I think you can like use bone grafts to help a badly broken leg heal too. You know, I think bone is just like it's like an epoxy. It's like a human. It's like a, an ingredient of us that is sort of like epoxy and will sort of bind to things and, and pull them together. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's my, that's my. <laughs> yeah, I'm into it. I, yeah, that makes sense to me. I'm following you. So that's good. So it's very, so, so it's in demand and people want it and will pay for it. And so when I was trying to figure out the, you know, what the, what the crisis of my story was, Around the time that I was figuring that out, one of the facilities that we would that we got our parts from, our specimens from, um, was busted. What they said was was going to happen was <clears throat> your person donates their body after they die. The body is taken from the hospital or wherever to this facility. It's um, chopped up and flash frozen and sent out in different places, but it's highly regulated. And those pieces are then returned to the facility and then they're cremated and then the cremains are returned to the family. And this place was faking the cremains and sending bones to another country, I can't remember, where they were being harvested to be sold on the black market for bone grafts. Wow. Um, yeah, right? <laughs> oh, my God. I know. I know. It was so dramatic. It was even on TV. Um, like, That's it was on so the news. That's so you know? too, because I it's know. like, if it's on the black market, if people really need them, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of get it. Yeah. I mean, it's fucked up. Obviously, it's fucked up, but. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I, I think that, um. Things get real dodgy when you get into dealing in in black market body parts, though. Yeah, <laughs> I think that I think that I'm not sure that there's a scenario where I would be like, "Yeah, this is very positive use." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is morally you know? great. No gray area here. Yeah, because then you don't have any regulation. Area. Yeah, but then you don't have any regulation, and then you can. I feel like then the the opportunity for medical malpractice is like so high, and um, like it, I don't think these black market bone grafts are being given to poor people who need them. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, you know, like I don't yeah. think this is a nonprofit sort of. Thing. <laughs> Fair enough. Um. Wow. So how did your lab react? Because that was that was a supplier, right? One of your yeah. suppliers. Well, we had to we had to pivot and use a different supplier. Honestly, I don't even remember what happened to the company. If they were 
dissolved or if they were, if the people who were responsible were removed. Yeah. I just don't know. But they were making bank on other people paying them for for these yeah so (laughs) so why did you wind up going with a different villain well because it wasn't personal yeah that it just wasn't that wasn't a personal crime and i i couldn't figure out how to make it a personal crime and i wanted my i wanted the crux of the the trouble to be personal yeah to them um, so, but what it did do was I think it made me be like, oh, there's a whole, um, there's a whole, I need to remember that there's like a whole world beyond the cadaver lab that interacts with the cadaver lab. And so that's why my, my villain is a cremator. Um, right. because I, you know, it's easy, I think, to get in the, when you go in a research hole to be like, my research hole is insular and only exists in itself. And um, and it was very useful to be like, oh, right, no, we're supported by all of these arms and we need all of these ancillary services and, you know. Yeah. Wow. I'm still thinking about what you said about the research hole not being its own thing and how you have to remember that. Well, and I'm like, I, I, do I remember that? I don't know that it is. It needs to always be the rule. But I think that there, because I think that there is something glorious about um, when you are so single-minded that you dig deep in a way that you wouldn't if you were considering other things. But I think that, like, in the end, it's it's helpful to find the relationships that the research hall has to other Oh yeah, things you know. So and I, I think, think I'm sure I mean, that you me, do. Well, for me, I think it's like tunnels, right? If we keep with the whole metaphor, like mm-hmm. you can go straight down, but I feel like I keep going off to the side, and I or, or I have to resist going off to the side too much, and because uh, I I feel like everything is a web, mm-hmm. and the more the more you learn about something, the more you realize how much you don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so I think I just get overwhelmed often by the sort of interconnectedness of everything. And oh, I definitely. feel like, oh, if I learn about this, I have to learn about this. And if I learn, and then as a writer, you got to stop and be like, okay, but what's my story? Like, what do I need for my story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything else you want people to know about Cadaver Labs or any other stories you want to share? You know, it's so funny. I, at the time, I felt like I knew so much about so many different kinds of surgeries. <laughs> and this, <laughs> this is definitely the difference between me and one of the real doctors. <laughs> <laughs> is that now I don't remember any of that stuff. Um so I guess that I I don't know I have a little bit of because I was thinking about it in in preparation for this and I think I, I'm a little like I'm a, I'm a little sad about that. There's I think there's something interesting about when how we accumulate information and then how it sort of drifts away when we don't need it anymore. Okay, well um, that was 
fascinating. (laughs) Now it's time for something I learned this week. Um, which is going to be hopefully a section that people write in and share one of their research holes. But right now, the podcast hasn't reached that many people yet. So my dad (laughs) has provided all the something I learned this week. Okay. This is what my dad wrote. My, the body is a miracle that we take for granted. (laughs) Who made this incredible system? God? Oh, if you're asking me that question, Valerie, the answer is me. I made you, so to speak. (laughs) Kind of. But here is some body in food that makes you shake your head. And it's from Bill Bryson's book, The Body. Have you ever read Bill Bryson? I haven't read that book, but I have. (laughs) I've gifted that book. (laughs) He's a funny guy, right? You've gifted the body? Yeah, I really, I've, and I flipped through it. I really enjoy it, but I haven't read the, I haven't read it properly yeah um so there's there's a lot here but i think we'll just focus on two facts about the heart oh great so he goes how often does the heart beat Mm. in a second in a day in a year in 68 years which is his age okay um i don't want to do math but how often do you think the heart beats beats in a second can you make a guess in a second? Yeah. I'm going to say twice. 1.1. Whoa. 1.1 right. beats. Okay. So a little over once per second. Okay. And in a day that translates to 100,000 beats. Wow. And in 68 years, it's 2,482, no, 2,482,000,000 beats. That's very cool. I'm just like thinking like, yeah, two billion four hundred eighty-two million <laughs> heartbeats. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect rendition. How do you measure, measure a dad? Do you deal with hearts at all in the cadaver lab? We did. But, you know, I don't actually remember seeing any hearts. Huh. Like any, any... Any just, like, hearts on a table. Yeah. I think I'm... that they were always in torsos. Okay, yeah. So you would order a torso in, mm-hmm. and then the people who were studying to be surgeons would, like, take out the heart. Yeah. Or do, do whatever or, they did. Or do it in the torso. Right. Right. That makes sense. Because you want context. Yeah. For your surgery. Right. In the anatomy lab, you'd take out the heart and, like, look at it and weigh it and poke it, probably. I'm always amazed when I see, like, pictures of anatomical hearts Mm -hmm. and just how, I don't know, the sort of, like, tunnel-y, complex little shape they make. Yeah. The other fact he gave me, or question, trivia fact, is... How many gallons of blood slash frequency does the heart pump? Oh. So how many gallons of blood does the heart pump in an hour? Oh my gosh. Do you want to make a guess? I I, I will, but it's going to be like a very guessy guess. Yeah. Um, I don't know how to make an actual inference. Like yeah. the fact in an that hour? it beats in an hour. 
Okay. I'm going to say, um, I'm going to say 25 gallons. <laughs> 70. Wow. Okay. All right. I mean, that makes, that makes sure. just as much sense. <laughs> Which in 638 years translates to 41,697,600 gallons. Wild. That's so So, much. So now we've learned something. Mm -hmm. A little something extra. (laughs) If you'd like to share something you learned this week, either while researching a project or just living your life, email me at researchholepodcast at gmail.com and I may read it in a future episode. So Mary Wynn, where can people find you if they want to learn stuff about you or your books or where can they find your books? Probably the simplest way is to go to my website, which is marywynheider.com. Nice. Um, Nice and easy to remember. Yeah. And then just my, my books are, you know, available where books are sold. <laughs> yeah, all the places. I, I mm-hmm. said in my last episode, bookshop.com, which is wrong. Org, yeah. It's .org, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a way that you can support indie bookstores. I mean, you could buy it on Amazon too. You could buy it anywhere. But a way to support indie bookstores is to look it up on bookshop.org. And then yeah. some of the money goes to indies. I, I can't end the episode without talking a little bit about the theatrical ab- adaptation of Phobia. Oh. I didn't know that was happening. Yeah. It's really fun. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Um, I'm, I'm working with my, um, my college roommate. What? Yeah. Who is a director in San Francisco. And... Um, we found a composer that we who we adore in Seattle, and so um, the three of us have been uh, working on the adaptation since. So we were supposed to have a workshop of it at the Kennedy Center, um, you know, exactly a, a a year ago, a year ago in April, and obviously uh-huh. that didn't happen, um, and so. You know, everything is still a little bit, I think, asterisked uh, in theater right now. But, um, but we're, we have it, I mean, it's, it's, it's been so fun. It's been so fun to adapt. And we're going to have like, the heads are going to be puppets. We have this great puppeteer. Oh my God. In DC that we're working with. Like, it's going to be, I think, so much fun. And, um. It lends itself so well. Is it a musical? I feel like yeah, it lends it's a musical. itself so well to music. Yeah, it's a musical. <laughs> and um the yeah, it's I'm I'm really I'm really excited about it. This composer is hilarious and and fabulous. And um and so so we're right now we're looking to do a workshop in the fall um in like the late fall early winter of next year um and then like pick back up with we'll probably do another round of revision after that but you know i mean it's um i think i think once we actually like get moving and with having being able to see people do it it's gonna be it's gonna start moving really fast (laughs) but right now it feels a little bit like we 
you know, we did it. And then, and now we're just sort of on the edges of our seats, like excited to hear people sing it and say it out loud. But it, it, it's really fun because I have a background in theater and it has been such a joy to adapt my own story because I have so much freedom to be like, I know the heart of this story. Speaking of hearts. <laughs> um, I like know the heart of this story and I know that this moment I can tell better in this theatrical way. And so it's, whereas if I were adapting somebody else's piece, I feel like I might feel more um, obligated to, to, to be more sort of loyal to the structure or the whatever that they, the way that they told it. Um, it being mine, I feel like I have so much freedom and it's, it's given us a lot of room to play. And I think that it's, it's just, it's so, it's been so fun. <laughs> it's been so fun. Um, and there are, you know, several big musical numbers in the cadaver lab, which, you know, it's just a blast. Do you get to have any kids react to it? We do. That's one of the things that the the, the dramaturg at the Kennedy Center, Elizabeth, is phenomenal. And um, we've um, we talked about having because there are, you know, a lot of kids don't have initial <laughs> familiarity with a cadaver lab. So that's something that I am really attuned to is making sure that we are very quickly very explicitly explaining what a cadaver lab is so that that's not something that's like confusing for the rest of the show. So she, they have like relationships with classrooms that they will, um, we think for the workshop probably we'll, we'll just stream the workshop to these classrooms and, and then, and like have them be our, our beta audience, you know? Um, but they, they have such an incredible TYA program and they have so many incredible relationships that we're going to be able to definitely like do some test runs of it. That's so cool. <laughs> I wish you yeah. could be in a classroom when it's being streamed. Oh my gosh, me too. Just like a fly <laughs> on the wall just like watching yeah. their reactions. Yeah. I I when I was in undergrad I um I did some theater for young audiences stuff. That's like the field I thought I was going to go into for a while. Um and the best thing about it is like the kid's initial response to something. <laughs> uh, Just yeah. like do a something and see what the, the, the loud laughs or the not laughs, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> or the fact yeah. that they yell out. They just want to talk to you and they just like yell out stuff, which is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I hope I hope it all works out great and that Thanks. one day I get to see it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Me too. Me too. If you loved my conversation with Mary Wynn today, you should join us next week because she'll be back. Um, we both had so much to talk about with our research holes that it fit better into two episodes. So next episode, she'll be back and listening to one of my weird historical fact-filled stories. You just heard the very first episode. Nope, that's not true. <laughs> That is an old script. <laughs> um, you are listening to Research Hole. I'm Val Howlett. Our music is by Joey Howlett. Our logo is by Leah Lucci. Goodbye. Goodbye.